there are some parallels in the acting world or some, some things in acting that I think um, help prepare me for real estate. Um, you know, none of those things were, uh, you know, like figuring out valuations or, you know, using spreadsheets or any of that. But I think a little bit more on sort of the mindset and soft skills that I think are required to be successful in real estate. Um, you know, as an actor, uh, you face a lot of rejection. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are super stoked to have Matt Pacheni on the show today. And Matt is a real estate investor, Tony Award winner, and the number or an author of a number one best-selling book, Backstage Guide to Real Estate. I am so fired up today because we're going to dive into not just the real estate world, but into the world of acting, digital marketing, and all these different worlds that has shaped Matt as a person and his experience. And Matt, as always, if you'll dive right in for us and go into the craziest real estate transaction or experience you've faced so far in your career. Well, it, it's a good question. It's really fresh in my mind because this just happened. We just sold a property and, uh, you know, well, look, in case someone's listening to this later, right, we're recording this in December of 2022, right? And so things have been really crazy in the real estate world with interest rates going up. And we uh, had uh, a transaction. We were selling a property, a uh, large property. Uh, we're very excited about it because we were going to get great returns for our investors and really looking forward to closing and uh, the seller uh, extended closing. Um, and they had two extensions in the PSA. So they extended once, then they extended again. <laughs> and then it came to the end of the two extensions in the PSA and they still were unable to, to close the transaction. Uh, so we gave them some more time. Um, <laughs> another two weeks later, and, and we're sort of biting our nails here. Like, is this going to happen? Because we know uh, interest rates have continued to go up. Uh, so valuations have been eroding, right? But we still want to get this deal done at the initial purchase price. Um, they were trying to retrade us, but we we didn't really allow that to happen. And it was kind of going back and forth. And the day of closing was insane. We're like, they said they had all the money and then they were like $5 million short. And then they had it and they didn't. And then somebody called like one of my partners and was like trying to get us to do like a $4 million carry back of the thing at, but the other partner and the broker and I were on the phone and they were saying they had the money and they had already wired it. But the other guys, I don't know. It was like, it was insane. It was like the craziest, weirdest thing going on. Then at the end of the day, this was on a Friday at the end of the day on Friday at uh, like five 30, um, they, they finally close it. The, the title agent sends, you know, hey, we have received all the money, everything is in, and we are officially closed on this transaction. You know, everyone had signed the, the closing statements. Everything's done. Everything's great. They said, we're going to wait until Monday uh, to disperse funds because it's too late, you know, to, to, to disperse funds at this point to send out wires. Great. About an hour later, the title agent says, uh, Matt, did you agree to give them $3 million back? Oh, and boy. I'm like, no. 
And they said, well, I, the, the seller, she forwards me this email and the seller says, I mean, sorry, not the seller, the buyer said like, Hey, we're supposed to get, you know, there, we're going to be getting 3 million back. So here's the wiring instruction that like wiring is just like, please send this money back. <laughs> and, and she was like, no, she said, do you have, has a seller agreed to this? And the person wrote back, not yet. So I'm sitting there like kind of freaking out. Like, I mean, we closed, we were told we closed. Mm -hmm. My attorney's already gone, so I can't get a hold of them. Um, I called the broker, both the buyer broker and the seller broker and asked them to reach out to the buyer and like find out what's going on here. Um, and I don't hear anything back. So the whole weekend I'm sitting there in limbo like, did we really, like, I think we officially closed, but I'm not a lawyer. Like, I don't know. We have all the money, but the money's not in our bank account. So I was just sweating bullets until Monday afternoon when I saw the money actually hit the bank account <laughs> for our, for you know, for our investors and myself. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like so happy when that happened. But that's the craziest real estate story to date that I have. I want to um, dive into this year. a little bit more. Because it, if there was a $3 million carry back, then, then you'd be $3 million short. So did they send all the money or were you short three mil? No, no, no. They, so that's the thing. One of the, so, you know, the, the deals that I do are often done like as a you know, syndication, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, so I have some partners and they have some partners. Now there's supposed to be one partner who's communicating with the <laughs> brokers so that there's now like, you know, so that what this happened doesn't happen, right? What happened was one of the partners on the other side knew one of the partners on my side and was trying to get us to do a $3 million carry back while we were pushing to make sure that the money did get wired and the money was wired. But the other partner, I guess, didn't know that. I don't know what was going on, honestly. It was a big sort of mess. We got the money. We didn't. We didn't close until we had all the money. All the money was in. We closed, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh wait, no, no, no! Give us three million back!" And we're like, "No, ain't happening." No, like, yeah. Oh, like yeah. you agreed to to this deal. We've been very kind to you, letting you extend and extend and extend, and then you gave us the money, and we're not, we're not yeah. giving. We don't have to give it back legally, and like. They still wanted to do the deal. They just wanted us to give them a $3 million loan like ourselves. And we're like, we don't, that's not what we agreed to. That wasn't yeah. our agreement. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Wow. Crazy. So take, <laughs> take us into the world of acting and, and maybe contrast like, what are the differences in the world of acting in the world of real estate investing? And is, is there carryover? Like what are the skills and knowledge bases that maybe do carry over? Yeah, you know, I talk a little bit about that in, in my book that you mentioned earlier, Backstage Guide to Real Estate, because it, it tells the story of me being an actor, knowing absolutely nothing about real estate all the way to where I am now, right? It shares with the reader the things that I learned along the way. And I talked about how there are some parallels in the acting world or some, some things in acting that I think um, help prepare me for real estate. Um, you know, none of those things were, uh, you know, like figuring out valuations or, you know, using spreadsheets or any of that. But I think a little bit more on sort of the mindset and soft skills 
that I think are required to be successful in real estate. Um, you know, as an actor, uh, you face a lot of rejection. <laughs> um, you know, I go out there, I do, I sing my song or I read my lines or whatever it is. And I hope that they like it and they might even like it, but for one reason or another, they, they, they can't cast me in the role. I'm too tall. I'm too short. I have dark hair. Like, you know, what, you know, there's, there's all these different reasons, by the way, I'm very short. I've never been too tall for anything, but, um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, there, there's, a certain certain amount that you, you know you can do the best that you can i think you just kind of sort of hope and i find the same with real estate in terms of like i look for deals i find deals i underwrite them as best as i can i put in the highest possible offer that i can that would still get the returns for my investors that are needed and then it's kind of like out of my hands. You know, if somebody is coming in on a real estate deal and we both have the same purchase price, but they're coming in all cash, like I can't, there's nothing I can do about that, right? That all cash offer is going to win, right? They, they've got $19 million. I'm making that up, a $19 million property. They got all cash. They can close next Wednesday. I, there's, I can't compete, right? So um, there's that. And then, and there's, you know, a lot of, I've had a lot of rejection, uh, I would say when it comes to real estate in terms of, uh, looking at deals and trying to find deals that make sense. And I run the numbers and they just don't, and the purchase price isn't right. Or for one reason or another, I end up not getting a deal. And that, that happened to me in the real, in, in the acting world. Now I was actually a pretty darn successful for an actor as far as actors go. I mean, I was a working actor. I worked a lot as an actor, but I attribute that to my persistence and the fact that I, that's actually, I, I said, I share these, these things uh, that, that I learned along my journey. So there, I call them keystone concepts. There's 18 throughout the book and keystone concept number two is about persistence. Right. And, and that's the thing, like I kept going as an actor, I would face rejection after rejection. I didn't let it get me down. I just, you know, get myself back up and go to the next one, go to the next one, go to the next one. That's what I did in real estate. It took me two years. Once I decided that I wanted to do real estate full-time, it took me two years to get my first syndication. Two years. Now, that first syndication was a 132-unit apartment complex. It was a $10 million purchase price. It was just like, it was far larger than anything I had ever done before, but it took a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I, I underwrote well over a hundred deals. I'm not talking about just kind of looked at a deal. There were deals I looked at and I knew right away they didn't work, but over a hundred deals that I actually did full underwriting on, put in offers, you know, and, and just you know, rejection after rejection after rejection. And then finally got one that made sense. What a brilliant answer. Um, I love your emphasis. I mean, mindset is almost the most important thing. Um, it is so important in regards to success in any field. And I love how you put the correlation there between acting and real estate investing. And, and, and your focus on being able to plow through re rejection persistently is, is also so important because, you know, eventually you're going to get a yes. I mean, it's just a numbers game no matter what. Um, I would love to get into like your earlier journey when you were doing the acting and you were getting all that rejection, what kind of strategies did you develop in order to overcome those? Or were you just born innately with the ability to keep going? <laughs> oh, I, 
I don't know if I was born innately with the ability to, to keep going. Um, but I think I did get that from, um, from my parents, uh, from my upbringing. I think that they taught me about, you know, um, basically you can do anything that you put your mind to. Uh, I think they firmly believe that. And, and I firmly believe that. Um, and I think that was part of it. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to be an actor from a fairly young age. I think definitely by fifth grade, if not sooner, right? I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I um, started getting involved in this. So, so my big breakthrough in fifth grade, I was Bert and Mary Poppins, right? Which was uh, the, the fifth grade play, right? It's, it's, uh, I was the Dick Van Dyke role, right? And, and I was, I, you know, everyone was like, oh, you're so good, blah, 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 blah. So, so I just, you know, and I was pretty good for fifth grade, you know, <laughs> and, uh, they, they, they had, um, I, I knew I wanted to, to start doing that more. And so I started doing things, community theater, singing classes, dancing classes, all kinds of stuff like that. But I was constantly told by the people in the industry, mentors, people that I looked up to, teachers, um, to not try to pursue a career in theater. They were like, if there's anything else you right. can find that you'd like to do that you could possibly see yourself doing, like anything else at all, do that. Because trying to be an actor, like trying to make a living, and if you know, especially if you like want to have a family and stuff like it's so erratic, it's so unstable. It's funny, I know people who've been on Broadway, they'll do a Broadway show and then they'll be out of work for three years. You know, and they'll be awesome. They'll be fantastic. You can win a Tony Award, uh, you know, and then and then be unemployed by no fault of your own, right? So there, there's, there's so many different factors that go into it. So it's, uh, I guess I just was always sort of mentally preparing my, myself that, you know, and, and you see it in the, in the movies and stuff like that where people go in and audition, they're like, next, you know, and, and you, you know... I think if you're interested in theater at that younger age and you just in sort of the culture, it's just like, Hey, there's a lot. And also look, man, I didn't get shows. Like when I was in high school, I would audition for something that I really wanted and I didn't get it. And you know, I, I learned just to like, Hey, you know what? You, you get yourself back up and you just keep going at it. And eventually it happens, you know? So you were a working actor. Like I want to use the word starving actor, but that doesn't seem to describe you. You were making your living, getting a Tony award. And then you eventually did a deal that completely altered your, your mindset. And then you went into real estate. What I'd like to talk about is you had a passion young in life and you pursued it and were successful, but you ended up leaving that passion for, for real estate. So can you talk about did real estate become more of a big, like if you were to gauge your life happiness as an actor versus your life happiness as a real estate investor, can you give us a context of, of both? Wow. Um, that's a hard thing to do. I'll, I'll, and I'll explain why. And I think I can answer some of your question, but, but the actually like gauging, like I'm really thrilled with my life right now. I'm the happiest I've ever been, but I don't, I didn't have any like regrets back then. It's just like, I'm married. I have two children. Like I, I do, I love, I just love so much who I am that I don't think like, I'm like, well, gee, I was happier back then. I don't think I, but I, I was happy back then. Um, so that, that's hard to say, I, 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 but I'll, I'll, I'll say this as a couple of things. So 
Number one is just to be clear, I did not win the Tony Award for acting, although I really, really wanted to win that Tony Award for acting. That was my dream. I ended up much later in life, very recently winning a Tony Award with my wife uh, as co-producers on a on a, uh, a Broadway show called Moulin Rouge, which is awesome. And like, I'm thrilled to have a Tony Award, <laughs> but um, I didn't get it back then. Back, back when I was an actor, I was... Uh, I was a working actor, but I was also a struggling actor. So I, um, right after I got out of school, I got, I went to a, a school called the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. It's called AMDA here. It's a, it's a musical theater conservatory in New York City. And I graduated from there. The last semester at AMDA, they switched the classes from daytime to nighttime so that you can audition during the day and then you can talk with people and, and you know, just get, get ready for auditions. The first audition that I went out on in New York City, uh, I ended up booking the gig. Now, I went on that audition and then I went on many other auditions and then I got a call back for that role a few days later and I, I did that. And I continued to go out on auditions and about three weeks later, I found out I got the role. Here's a, an interesting story. Um, so uh, <laughs> I, it's a persistent story. And that's why I'm telling it because it just goes back. I went out, I auditioned, I got a call back, great. I sent a postcard after my call back to the director of the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I was told you should do these kinds of things. I did them for every single audition. I did it like a week or two, maybe after the audition. Um, and <laughs> it turns out that what happened was they gave the role to somebody else. Okay. And the person like accepted the role. And then like a week or two later, like called back and was like, I'm sorry, I got some other thing. I can't do it. And they, they like backed out of the role. And it just so happened that they had just gotten my postcard in the mail. Like, I don't know if like it was that day or a couple of days before, but they saw my postcard and they're like, oh yeah, well, this guy, he had a callback. Like he was really good. He was like one of the finalists. He just wasn't the one we picked. He seems to really want it. So they called me and gave me the gig. Like, I really I got the gig because of the postcard. So, but the, the reason why I started even bringing up this story is that I went off on a national tour went throughout the United States. It was a production of Aladdin. And if I remember correctly, and it was a long time ago, uh, I made $200 a week. That was my salary. Wow. Uh, now, now this is the nineties. This right. is So a little more than today. Yeah, but it's still, it's still pretty low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, it just, it wasn't, um, you know, and, and and also you're in a situation where like we were on the road. So it's not like I could go to the store and buy groceries and make myself some sandwiches, which are, you know, relatively inexpensive. Like we have to eat at a restaurant every day, like all three meals a day. Like it's just, that's what it is. I mean, we lived at Shoney's for the, those, they used to have those breakfast bars, but mm -hmm. like, you know, but, but seriously, like every meal was eating out. And so it was expensive to to live that kind of lifestyle. Um, and uh, luckily at that time, I actually didn't even have a place to live. I, I had let my apartment in New York go. Um, I, uh, I remember I had like a bookshelf and I had a television and I had a futon. And so I gave a futon to a friend like, hey, can you hold this for me in your apartment? And they're like, yeah, sure. And the TV to someone else 
and the bookshelf to somebody, someone else. And then when I got back to New York about nine months later, it was a nine month tour. Then I found a place to live. And then I like gathered my belongings. I actually couch surfed for like a few months. So like, was I a working actor? Yeah. But was I, you know, like, totally. Yeah. I hear you. Dollars? Absolutely. No. And as I continued through my career, you know, I did it for about five years. The first like four, three to four years, I was non-union. So it was much, much lower paying things. Towards the end of that time, um, I became a member of the Actors' Equity Union. So I started getting paid better, but it's still, I was doing regional theater. You don't make a lot of money. They, they told me this, that all those teachers and stuff who tried to discourage me from going into acting, they told me this saying, they said, um, uh, it was, uh, movies make you famous television makes you rich and theater makes you an actor. And I wanted to be an actor. I was into the art, you know, I was an artist, I was a craftsman and, and I think I was pretty good at it, but I mean, I was really into it and I didn't really care that much about the dollar signs. I mean, I needed to pay rent and eat food. Um, but, uh, you know, dollar signs have never been a huge motivation for me throughout my life, actually. This this perfectly segues. Well, I love this because this perfectly segues into the question that I wanted to ask, which it seems like in Hollywood, this in in acting, this is a general general thought pattern, which is like you know there it's passion over over money and and that sort of thing. Real estate investing, especially on the commercial side, syndication, it feels almost completely opposite. You go to these syndication conferences, and it is oftentimes the most boring experience you'll have. There is no passion. It's like no offense to any uh, engineers or, or things like that, but it's, it is like, so can you describe? Like, I'm on, yeah, well, for I'm sure. On, yeah. You're bringing you the fashion, baby. Yeah. 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 So, so talk about that. Like as, as you switched, like, did you feel like you just encountered a new side of yourself you didn't know existed? How, how did that, that go? Well, I, um, yes, I, I, I uh, two things. I, I should probably tell you the story of like how I got in, into real estate because that that'll be be helpful a little bit. But also, um, I've always been like an analytical person. You know, when you're younger and they do like those like tests, like about you know when you're a kid and the aptitude test kind of things or whatever. They were always like, hey, you should go and be a lawyer. Like you're really good. You're really analytical and like you like figuring out puzzles and stuff like that. And that's the way that I think a lot of engineers are. And that's why I think I can do the underwriting stuff really well. Um, when I was a, uh, once, once I stopped doing the acting and was involved in digital marketing, um, but I started doing, um, I was a project manager for, for many, many years in digital marketing. And so I'm really good at managing people, budgets, and timelines. So that brings me into sort of the asset management of things. So that's kind of how I get, how I, my skill sets, I think, apply to real estate right now. But the way I got into real estate was, you know, I had my own boutique agency doing website development right after the theater stuff. And um, it was doing great. And, you know, late 90s, everything's coming along. 2001 comes along, dot-com bubble bursts, right? My business is imploding because nobody's spending money on digital stuff at all. And my landlord calls and tells me I have 90 days to get out of the apartment that I'm living in. So, you know, I'm, I, I, I want to stay in New York, but like, how can I afford to stay in New York? Mm -hmm. And I have no job and my business is 
failed completely. And so I ended up getting a job at Showtime, the cable television channel. They were a client of mine. They offered me a position in-house. And I ended up, while I was looking, I uh, my sister actually came across an, a, a bullet on a bulletin board, a thing for uh, an apartment for sale up in Washington Heights, not where I wanted to live, but a place that I could afford. It was actually cheaper for me to buy that than rent in the neighborhood I wanted to live in. Uh, I bought that apartment and then I sold it two little over two years later and saw my initial equity, my down payment more than quadruple in value. And that was like the light bulb moment for me. Like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. Like, how can I make that happen again? Because I was working, you know, uh, this was more money than I made in the, in the one, uh, in a full year, <laughs> like in that one transaction, then a full year of salary. So like, how, how could I make that happen again and free up my time to allow me to do things that I'm passionate about? You know, whether that would be getting back into theater, uh, which I ended up never wanting to really do, although I'm, I am involved in theater now, but on, on the sort of business end of theaters in conjunction with my wife. Um, but how could I, you know, generate income, right? Passive income so that I can do what I want to. That's the, you know, the tagline for my book is produce passive income, write your own story, right? And then direct your dollars towards positive change. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is, spend um, my money, my investment dollars in deals that I care about, that I think are making a positive impact in the world. I'm not not a, a charity. Uh, I, this is, there's definitely a profit motive here, but we try to do things where we're, we're leaving the world a little better than we found it. And we can talk more about that if you want and get into the details on that. But we, we are always trying to make a positive impact uh, on any investments that we're involved in. Oh. Absolutely. We will definitely get into that. But I just I love the tagline so much. Write your own story is such a fantastic slogan. And it ties in exactly to what we're trying to do. Obviously, our avenue tends to be real estate investing, but we're called the freedom chasers because we want people to design their own lives, which essentially is the same thing as writing your own story. Correct. Um, so yeah. there's this correlation that I think I've caught that probably helped you greatly. So I wanted to ask you directly about this because building a real estate business is based on sales and or relationship building, right? And in sales and relationship oh, yeah. building, tonality, tone, and the way you say things is far more important than what you actually say. So do you think acting made the transition to that role a lot easier? Because I'm assuming it had to. You know, I uh, have found that um, sales type of stuff has come naturally to me. I haven't had to like do any sort of sales training. Like I, I went to like this one thing and it was great. There's nothing wrong with it, but I didn't really like learn a lot from it. Um, I was like, oh, I already do that. Oh, I already do that. Like some of it maybe was just kind of instinctual. I think having the acting background has allowed me to feel comfortable talking with people, uh, meeting with strangers or getting up on a stage and speaking. Um, it, maybe it has helped me in, with my diction and clarity. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but I, I, uh, I think that sort of 
unintentionally it has helped, you know, like, like when you think about, you hear about a football player taking ballet class, right. And it's not that, you know, they're, they're on the, you know, football field doing pirouettes or something like that. Right. But, but it helps them with their agility and their dexterity. Right. And it kind of just rubs off on them and gets into sort of their movement. Right. And I think maybe that's it. Like the acting got me into a place where I'm able to do those things. It's kind of become inherent. Maybe, I don't know. Love this. So, so tell you, I think you mentioned there was 18 principles in the book can you tell me the two or three that were maybe most impactful to you, most meaningful? Um, you know, uh, on my website, I have this free resource. Uh, if you look at the book, and it actually lets you download three of them. I'll tell you what those are. Um, so one of them is Keystone Concept number one, which is uh, don't trade your time for money. And it's talking about how, look, and this I think is right up your alley, right, guys? I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about, about, about writing your own story, uh, about chasing freedom, right? If you can figure out ways to generate money, you don't have to trade your time for money, right? Uh, you can't generate time. <laughs> time is finite, right? But you can always generate money. So that's, that's what Keystone Concept number one is all about, right? Uh, Keystone Concept, the second one that's in there is Keystone Concept number five. And Keystone Concept number five is all about um, cash flow is king. So cash flow is king. Now, this is a concept that my father taught me. When I, when I bought, so my dad used to be a real estate broker, actually, a long, long time ago. And then he got involved in food service. But when I bought my first uh, apartment, my dad told me something. And I didn't, I didn't really get it. Like, I got it. But I didn't get it profoundly until a later date. So what he told me, he said, Matt, you'll never lose money in real estate if you never have to sell. When that really hit home for me was... After I had sold that place and I had bought the apartment on the Upper West Side and 2008 came along and I saw the value of my property plummet down. Now, I was fortunate that I had bought it a few years prior. So I'd seen a large escal escalation in the value. So when it plummeted down, it came down to about where it had been, like what, my purchase price. I was never underwater per se. Although a lot of people were at that time. Unfortunately, a lot of people lost homes. This is a terrible, terrible time. Um, but luckily, I, I was okay. But what I realized at that time was like, my dad's so right. Like, as long as I make this mortgage payment, like, it doesn't matter what the, what the value is. As long as I can keep my job and make this mortgage payment, it doesn't matter. This value, the value of the property could be $1. It could be $10 million. It doesn't matter. I just make that payment. What matters is when I sell it. I ended up holding on to the property for quite a long time and ended up eventually selling it and making a profit because eventually prices went back up. But um, so, so that's what that, that, that keystone concept number five, cash flow is king. It's all about cash flow. So if you can generate positive cash flow from your assets, I mean, I'm, I, I, you guys know this, right? This is what you guys do, right? But you have that positive cash flow, you're living off of it. But if you get into a hard time and you have to reduce some of it, that's okay. 
you can still ride out that those dips that you're going to have in the market cycle because you have that cushion. If you don't have the cushion, when things get rough, you're going to have a problem. And so cash flow is king. That's that's Keystone. And, and on that line. point, too, I have a phrase that I really love, which is you can only basically you only lose a game when you quit. And the only time most people quit is when they run out of money. And so, you know, I love, I love that you're talking about essentially an infinite game, which is if you hold forever, you never lose. And you can hold forever if you carry reserves or the property's cash flow, which is why you say cash flow is king. I love that. Yeah. And, and I think it's like, um, you know, my goal when I'm doing these deals is not, some of them are the vast, vast, vast majority. It's not, um, it's not about holding them forever, but you need to have the ability to do that. Like exactly like you're saying, have that cash flow because when you don't expect it, that's when things are going to go back, right? <laughs> and you need to you need to have that cushion. You need to have those reserves. So I do always have reserves in addition to that cash flow. But you know, the the, the all of those things help you hold on to it because we know the market's cyclical. You know, the one thing I can guarantee you is that real estate prices are definitely going to go up and they're also definitely going to go down. And I don't know how far up or how far down. I don't know for how long, right? But it's going to happen. It's going to go up and then it's going to go down and then it's going to go up and it's going to go So you need to be able to be good with the down. And then the, the third Keystone concept that I talk about in that on that download thing is, um, I think it's Keystone concept number nine, if I remember correctly, number nine, which is, uh, it's you, you want to be financially free. And this concept talks about, and this is a big one. Okay. This is a big one. My friend, Aaron, actually in Boston, like it took him a while to get this. This guy's like a great real estate guy. He's super smart. He's done very, very well. He is not financially free. Um, He's on his way to becoming debt-free. And I think after me talking to him about this for a couple of years, I think he's seen that he wants to be financially free. He doesn't care if he's debt-free. Um, so he was trying to pay off all of his property. I, in the in the download, like I have an example too, like where, where I, I, go, I go through the numbers on how it works. But basically like you can be debt-free. You pay off all your debt. You have no debt. Great. Uh, but you might still have to work a nine to five job or, you know, do things to allow yourself to live the lifestyle that you want to live, um, where you can be financially free and have debt, but you can have good debt. You know, in, in this example of, of Aaron, that's not the example in the download, but there is, a, there is the story of Aaron in, in my book. Um, Aaron has like a bunch of properties in a really uh, affluent suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. And um, he has like seven or eight properties, right? And they're, they rent for their duplexes. They rent for a lot of money, has a lot of cash flow off of them. He decided to refinance all of his properties uh, into a portfolio type loan that was expiring in 50, a 15 year mortgage. He went with a 15 year mortgage because he ran the numbers and he looked at the debt and he's like, oh, well, there's so much debt. Like I can't pay millions of dollars in debt if I keep it for 30 years. But if I pay it off in 15, I pay less debt, which is fine. But the problem is 
all of the money, all of the cash flow that he was getting from his properties went to pay the debt service. So he had no cash flow, no money coming into him. So he still has to work his nine to five job, right? Now he happens to like the job that he does and he's his own boss. So like, it's not like the end of the world or anything, but he still, he has to do it. He has to do that for the next 15 years. And like, I don't know how old Aaron is. I think he's older than me. I'm almost 50. So like 15 years from now when I'm 65, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the kinds of stuff that I can do now, you know, like physically, like, I don't know. Um, so like, do you want to like postpone that, you know, gratification and have to work your, these crazy hours, you know, for, for 15 years, or he could have done his whole, the exact same thing, done a 30 year mortgage as payments would be half. Okay. And he would have been able to quit his job because the cash flow that he was getting, he wouldn't have to work his job anymore ever again. Right. Cause it 100%. was enough to cover everything. So like what, you know, what's the, so, so on one hand, Oh, 15 years from now, he's going to be debt free. He's going to be great in 15 years, but he could be financially free right now <laughs> and continue on and on and on. And if he didn't spend all the money that he's saving by doing the 30 year and he were to take that money and actually reinvest that money into another deal that gave him a better interest rate than his more. And, and he, he locked in on like, you know, 3% mortgage rates, right? Cause this was just a couple of years ago that he did all this stuff. Right. If, if, as long as you're getting more than 3%, like he would have been making money on the bank's money. Yeah. Like it, 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 it yeah, it was kind of crazy. So you own 10,000 units and are over 10,000 units, I should say. And so th that is not a small number. And I, I know that there's syndication going on. So it's not like you hold a thousand units personally, uh, or 10,000, right. 10,000 units. Per yeah. yeah. It's fractional ownership. Fractional yeah, ownership still doesn't diminish yeah. what you accomplished. So I think we would be amiss if we didn't talk about the skills you built along the way and how have you built the relationships to get people to invest the amount of money that's required to buy over 10,000 units? Okay. So uh, let's, let's clarify the 10,000 units, a, a, a little over 7,000 units or deals. I'm a limited partner in beautiful okay? passive investor in love it. I have almost 4,000 doors as a general partner. So, um, the 7,000 passive investments are, through a heck of a lot of networking, meeting other operators that I've gotten to know. Uh, there's the cliche, right? Know, like, and trust, right? People that I've gotten to know, that I've gotten to like, that I trust. I trust the person. You know, I talk, I have another free resource on my website, right on the homepage about sizing up a syndication, like how to look at these deals, you know, how I approach it. There's three things. It's the, it's the, the sponsor, the market, and the deal itself. And the most important is the sponsor, right? So meeting those people, getting out, networking, meeting people, finding people who are syndicating, right? Once I do that and I like them and I, and I, I think they're good and maybe hopefully I know someone else who maybe has invested with them and I can say, Hey, how's Matt Cavanaugh? Like, is he right. going to do me? Is he going to do me good? Or do yeah. I need to be worried about Matt Cavanaugh? Right. Like, Oh no, Matt Cavanaugh awesome. Yeah. So I'm like, Hey Matt, I want to get on your list. Like, let me know when you have a deal. And then I look at the deals themselves, you know, what market are they in? Do I like that market? Do I think that market has legs? And, and, and what's the business plan for the property itself? Does that deal make sense, right? So 
But then after that, it's all passive. I don't have to do anything. Like I give you my money and I hope that you don't lose it. <laughs> and I hope that you do what you should do and that, that it, that it makes money. Right. And, um, no, that's on, on sort of the passive side on the, uh, the other side, which is, which is the, the general partnership side, there's, there's sort of two things, right. That, uh, of relationships that I need to build, which is, you know, one, which is with brokers and property managers or other property owners, um, who have properties that I can acquire, right? So I, I have to have a funnel to acquire properties. And then I, you know, I, I invest in these deals because I'm finding deals that I like that I want to invest in that are going to do as well, if not better than the deals I'm passively investing in, right? The problem is I don't have like $10 million of capital to just plunk down on a deal. So I can put in, you know, a good chunk, but then I need other people to come with me. So I reach out to my investor database and say, hey, I've got this deal. If you're interested, let me know. These are all people I've gotten to know and gotten to know me over time, right? And that started off uh, with a very close-knit group of friends and family, right? Um, over the years, I've continued to do things like have the book or be on a podcast like yours or be on a stage and people have gotten to know me and some people say, oh, that Matt guy sounds interesting. And then they get to know me and we get to develop a relationship. Sometimes I have, you know, my friends and family do well on their deals or a new person who comes in does well on the deal. And then they're like bragging to all their friends. Oh, I just, you know, made, I'm going to make up a number a million times my money in two weeks mm -hmm. with Matt Pichetti. I've never done that. Right. I'm just saying like they, they, they do well though. I have deals I've done very well and they tell people and people are like, wow, I want to do one of those. So that's, how I've sort of kind of organically grown um, the investor database, the people who might be interested in my deals and they are notified about them when, when, when the opportunities come. Love it. So I'd like to dive into the decision-making process that you use to determine how much of your portfolio is going to LP positions and how much your portfolio is going to GP positions? Is it based on just how much bandwidth you have to run projects or how do you think through that? Yeah, I, I never really thought through it. Um, what happened was I had saved up uh, some money over many, many years working my tail off in the advertising industry in New York. Um, when we moved to Miami, I don't know if I told you about the Miami move. Not yet. But we moved. Miami. I have so many great stories. They're all in the book, but we moved to Miami and that's when I started to do real estate full-time. Right. And so we moved to Miami and I, um, I had some, I had a chunk of change. I was looking for my first deal to syndicate. It took me two years to get my first syndication deals. Uh, while I was, while I was looking for that first syndication deal, I thought it was smart to deploy some of the capital that I had saved into some other syndications as a limited partner. Because number one, I wanted to, I don't know, I guess part of me, I never thought of this before, but uh, in hindsight, part of me kind of want to make sure this whole thing wasn't like a, a scam too. Like, I'm like, hey, let me, let me put my money in and make sure it actually even works. But I was, I knew it would work and I was actively looking for something. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to, to do that and, and sort of put my money where my mouth is. But also I wanted to have the experience of being an investor of, you know, I had never done one of these before and here I am, you know, wiring someone 50k or 100k, you know, I mean, first time I did that, that was a scary thing. And looking through the legal documents, like 100 pages of legal documents that I have to sign for the, the, the PPM and the operating agreement, like, 
there was a there was there was like a learning curve that I got as a passive investor, and I made some money as a passive investor, and I and I and I invested with a few different operators, so I could see how their things differed, how was their legal documents different, or how were they communicating with their investors, and, and I used like all of those different learnings from those experiences to sort of custom tailor the way that I communicate with my investors, which is like on a monthly basis with. I've, you know, look, I'll pat myself on the back for a quick second. I've just been told by a lot of investors that invest in a lot of stuff like Matt, your communication is great. Like we love the detail that you put in your reporting and, you know, so uh, it, it, it's good. But the only reason why I knew to do that was because as an investor, if I had somebody whose deal I invested in, I wasn't getting the information or the kind of information I wanted or the detail level, I was kind of frustrated, you know? So those things were great. So I had done that for, I had been in about five deals passively before I invested in my first syndication. And then I got to a point where I was like, oh no, I have to stop investing passively because I'm going to run out of money. There's so many deals out there to passively invest in. And, uh, and a lot of them, you know, I started to get more discern discerning at this point, but there was still, this was still at a really good time in the market. And there was just a lot of deals that looked really good. Uh, but I was like, I need to save like a certain amount of capital for my own deals because like, what am I going to do? Like have my own deal that has this awesome return and not invest in it. Like it's kind of weird for investors to say, you know, if they ask me. Yep. Are you investing your own deal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you know, that's kind of weird. Number one, but number two, I wanted to like enjoy the, the benefits. So I stopped doing the passive investing at that point and saved my capital for that. But what, I, what I've done since then is sort of kept them sort of siloed where I have a certain amount of capital that I always try to keep so that it's available to go into deals, but everything else. And I generate money from those passive investments. I mean, those passive investments have grown and grown and grown. I mean, I've, I've been in like, I don't know, like 30 or 40 syndications at this point, um, because you're in it, you're in it for two years or three years, especially when the market's been really good and doubled my money. And then, you know, if I invested 50 into a deal now, all of a sudden it's a hundred, you know? And so it's just kind of grown. Wow. Yeah, that is so cool. So this kind of segues and ties us into, I mean, connected in some way to over 10,000 units. You're well on your way to having a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow. And once you get there, what what is that going to look like for you? How are you going to structure your time? Are you going to go back to acting? What's your life going to look like? I, I don't think I'll ever go back to acting. I, you know, with with like maybe a caveat of like if my kid's doing a community theater thing and they're like, Hey, it would be fun for you to do it too, dad, or something you know, like something like that. Maybe I would, but like, kind of, and I don't know if I would even want to do community theater, like no offense, but like I did it professionally for such a long time. I don't know. Whatever. I, 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 I don't have a desire to, to do that. Um, so I'm, uh, never going to have these billions of dollars that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't, I don't really need that. Right. And so that's not an aspiration of mine. Um, I, you know, my aspiration is to be in a position where me and my wife don't ever have to work a day in our lives if we never want to. We're, we're getting pretty close. My wife will always work. She loves, loves, loves her job. 
I will continue to do real estate deals. That's my job. I love it. I love helping people. You know, I spent a lot of time and effort uh, putting the book together. I'm, I know I'm never going to make the money back between the money and the time that I spent, but even just the money that I spent on the book alone. But it was something that I wanted to do that was interesting to me that was I was passionate about. And I think it's got to help people and help improve people's lives. And so I want to try to do stuff. I, I don't want to necessarily like create a charity. At least I don't think so at this point in time, but I want to be able to help people in whatever ways that I can. Right now, that's in doing business really ethically and do, we do great things for the tenants. We just, it was just Thanksgiving. We gave a whole bunch of our residents turkeys, like here, have a turkey, you know, it's Thanksgiving. We do stuff like that all the time. We're always giving them stuff, doing special events for them, showing our appreciation to them. Um, so that's, that's really important. Um, I uh, am also very passionate about the theater. So while I might not want to be an actor, I want to support the creation of new work. Um, so, you know, as, as producers, we've done that. We, we have a show right now that's in development that, you know, look, if it, if it loses, if it doesn't make it to Broadway, you know, we're going to lose a lot of money because we put a lot of money into optioning it and doing these different workshops. And um, if it makes it to Broadway, maybe it's successful, you know, hopefully we'll do okay. I mean, there, there's a profit motive here, but the, the success rate of Broadway is very low. So it's really about getting involved in Broadway stuff that I really like, that I'm really passionate about. And a lot of those seem to have some sort of like social message behind them, I've found, right? There's, uh, for me, I, I believe in the transformative power of the arts and that the arts, you know, whether it's theater or music, I'm a huge music fan, or even if you go to an art gallery, like you see things in a different perspective than you had in the past, right? Not always, but it can do that. And I've had that happen to me where I'm like, oh man, I never thought of it that way. Wow, like mind blown. That's a, I really should think of things that way, right? Mm -hmm. And so if there are, if there are shows or there's projects that have, uh, I think this positive messages in them that I think are good. Uh, I like to get behind them and put my dollars behind that. Brilliant answer. I just, I just love the philanthropy and your emphasis on the arts in general. Um, the Turkey thing that you did for your tenants is beautiful. Um, one of my previous brokers, we used to do a Turkey drive every year and I just, I can't really oh, yeah? explain how much, how fulfilling it was. It was amazing because, you know, these families, they couldn't afford turkeys and it just, it made the whole holiday for them. So, I mean, you're so sincere and it's very clear. Um, you said something to me that I've had written down for a while. So I just love this. You said the transformative power of the arts when you're talking specifically about acting and music, but I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts about the art of real estate? Because it's not all data. There's certainly art involved there too. Yeah, there is art involved there. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, there is. I mean, I'm thinking about the types of projects that I'm working on, right? When it comes to real estate, the multifamily thing that I do is a value add. You know, so we go, we buy a property where the rents are lower than the rest of the market usually because the place is in disrepair. We go in, we make it a nice, clean place to live. The residents love us for it. And then we slowly increase rents as people are leaving and we release the units up to like the middle of the market. We're not like pushing boundaries or anything, I don't think uh, at all. And 
Um, I don't know that there's a lot of art to that. There is some, um, but I think where the art comes in is like doing the community outreach stuff that we do, mm -hmm. like the turkeys and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, I'm working on a, on a new development deal, right? And that is a, a creation of a new uh, asset in a location that there's demand for this mm -hmm. type of asset. Uh, and so that is, there's a lot of art involved in that, right? Being able to see what's there, where the demand drivers are, what needs to be created and then going ahead and creating that and, and kind of like something from scratch. There's definitely, that's why I'm really excited about the project is definitely got more art involved in that. I can imagine the power of creation. I mean, there's few things that could rival that. Uh, Matt, so could you tell me what are your plans for the next 12 to 18 months? When you're, what are you looking to accomplish? Well, I have that, that one project that I'm working on. So that's, uh, that's that thing. And, um, that's going to be really fun. I'm not supposed to talk about it too much because it's not like, you know, out in the open and stuff. It's only for investors, people who are already mm -hmm. investors, uh, you know, of mine and, and my club. But um, beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to do something in the next 12 to 24 months. But, you know, I, I just did a webinar. I had this free webinar. It's on YouTube, by the way. If anyone wants to just go to the Pacheni channel on YouTube, you can see it. It's a a 30 minute thing. It's a little shorter, but there was Q and A at the end where I talked about where I think things are going and things that I think that it's called, it's the end of the world. <laughs> and, um, it's about like, Hey, everyone says it's the end of the world. Like real estate's over now. And, but is it really, and, and what's going to happen and what does the longer term look like? And I say that I think that the next 12 to 24 months, spoiler, if you haven't seen the video yet, are, is going to be, is going to be difficult, mm -hmm. right? It, it's definitely going to be difficult, but I think long term, the the prognosis is very good, right? So uh, there's there's a tremendous amount of of demand. Interest rates won't stay crazy high forever. They're a little crazy high now. They're going to get crazy high, and then they'll come back down to a normal level. We haven't seen normal in many years. Mm -hmm. They've been way too low. Uh, you know, I think normal, I say between five to 7% is sort of that normal uh, range. And um, I think we're going to see things get to there. But between that's, I think that's maybe 24 months out, 12 to 24 months out. So there's going to be volatility between now and then. So it's really going to be, I'm going to, I've always had a pragmatic approach, but I think it'll be even more so as I'm looking at deals and the, the, the issue right now is not, there's not really a real estate issue. There's a liquidity issue. Mm -hmm. There's not real estate's fine. The liquidity is the problem. And so how we're, we're the reason why deals aren't penciling out very well right now is because of the debt and the way the debt has to be structured in the capital stack. You know, you're not, you know, uh, seeing, you know, you, we used to be able to leverage properties mm -hmm. recently for 75%, maybe even more, maybe up to 80%. Now, a lot of deals, you know, a lot of lenders are only letting you leverage maybe 60%. So the returns get much lower at that point. Sometimes it's 50%. I mean, there's just, they're being stringent on those guidelines, which is good. They should be. And, and then there's also, you know, interest rates went from, you know, 3% to 6%. And depending on the deal, depending on the experience of the sponsor, depending on the location, there's a lot of variables, but the interest rates have gone up a lot. So 
because of that, the, the debt part of it, your capital stack, that's the part that is the puzzle that you've got to sort of figure out. Now, if you're really bullish, you could buy something right now all cash if you have the funds to do so, which is not everybody has mm -hmm. that, you know, liquidity. But buy something all cash now with a with an idea to refinance it in a couple of years, or you could do a bridge loan, right? So you could do, hey, I'm going to do like a, a three plus one plus one because I think in three years from now, rates will be better. I mean, you're betting that rates are going to be better. I don't know if that's the right bet. I don't know. I went, I went, I'm not like advising anybody do that, but I do know that some people are approaching it that way saying, Hey, we'll get debt now three years from now, it'll be better. And we'll refinance into a different type of uh, loan. The problem is that people who bought in the past two or three years that were taking that approach and bought with short-term bridge debt, floating rate debt, that um that you know things that are coming up or that the that the rates rates are coming up or they're coming up on the term of their loan that now have to figure out how they're going to get into a different sort of loan product that is those people are going to get caught in the next 12 to 24 months so um you could be in that position three years from now too. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, that's why I'm not saying you should do bridge debt, but there are people who are like, Hey, it's going to be fine. So I'm going to do bridge debt and refinance. Uh, some people are saying, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and take fixed, you know, long-term fixed right now, you know, mm -hmm. and then we'll see what happens. The problem with doing that, which is why people do bridge debt is because there's usually a pretty hefty prepayment penalty. So you got to figure out, all right, I'm going to hold on to this for exactly five years or seven years or 10 years. Because if you want to exit early, you, you have, you, you're sometimes precluded from doing it because you have this massive penalty that you have to pay. It could be millions and millions of dollars. Yep. Without a doubt, we're, we're looking or we're going into a very interesting 12 to 24 month period. I, for one, I'm actually looking forward to the volatility. It's a great time to wash out a lot of bad agents and bad investors and, and make sure the cream rises to the crop. Um, there's always opportunity out there. No matter what the market is, you just need to shift to the direction the market is going. So um, Matt Piceni, man, this has been absolutely amazing. It is not every day you get to talk to a Tony Award winner with 10,000 units and a best-selling book. Um, to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So please go to Piceni.com. There are tons of free resources on that website at a bare minimum for homework. Take a look at the Keystone concepts that he went through today in more detail. And for extra credit, go ahead and learn how to start a syndication because that's a very valuable skill. Um, there's so much more on there. Check out the book too. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. Do so within the next seven days. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.